This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Splann. Thank you for listening. Today's topic is relating to C-sections. So what do you need to know, emergency and scheduled, as well as before, during, and after? My guest today is Pete Barnard. He is a certified nurse midwife. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing at Fort Hayes State University School of Nursing in 1985. He later received his Master of Science in Nursing degree at the University of Utah. Pete has been a certified nurse midwife since 1990. As a midwife, Pete cares for women in all aspects of their life, including annual physical exams, birth control, prenatal care, delivery, and post-delivery care. He is trained in surgical first assist and specializes in gynecologic and oncologic surgery using the Da Vinci robotic system. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Madison. Thank you. I'm super excited. I've had a lot of patients kind of say that they have been waiting for a topic on cesarean sections and kind of understanding a little bit more about those. Um, So I'm super excited to go over this topic with you. Yeah. And like you said, I'm a first assistant. I'm not a surgeon. So, but I happen to do about 240 to 250 C-sections a year. So I'm in there almost every day doing C-sections. So I just put myself up to assist all of my partners and and anybody else who needs help for C-sections. So hopefully I can help out. Yeah, and for those listeners out there, Pete actually assisted with my C-section. He was Yay. the individual that brought around my baby so I could see him for the first time. So, <laughs> so I can cute. attest to his great uh, surgical assist and his knowledge <clears throat> on C-sections as well. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful baby. Oh, he had so much hair too. Still does. Yeah, a lot of hair. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to start off, Pete, will you kind of discuss with our listeners just the C-section procedure overall, just so we can kind of get a general idea from being wheeled into the OR to being wheeled out with that happy baby? Yeah, happy to do that. So um, each hospital, of course, has different procedures, but basically from the time you get into the operating room, it's about the same. So of course, it's done in the labor and delivery unit. Each labor and delivery unit has their own operating rooms. And um, and when you wheel into the operating room, that's where the procedure will take place. And then usually after the procedure, you go back to the room where you came from. Um, so going into the operating room, you can either walk or ride on a cart. It depends on when the C-section procedure is happening. So if it's have, if you're having a C-section while you're in labor, then most of the time you'll have um, a block of some kind, an epidural block. Um, if not, if it's an emergency situation, then you'll be wheeled into the operating room and then need to be put to sleep if it's that quick of an emergency situation. Um, or if it's a scheduled C-section, you'll walk into the room and then we'll sit you down on the operating room table. Um, and at that point, we will deal with the anesthesia part of that. And so if for some reason you... Um, are having an emergency C-section, like I said, you'd be put to sleep. Um, But most of the time we have time to uh, raise the level of the epidural block so that we can get you numb enough so that we can proceed with this procedure. If it's a scheduled procedure, then most of the time that's done with a spinal anesthesia and the spinal anesthesia acts almost immediately. So we'll put you up on the operating room table and place a spinal procedure, spinal epidural in, um, and it takes effect quickly. So after we place that spinal, then you'll lay down. And then once you lay down, then we place a Foley catheter. And you'll have that Foley catheter anywhere from 24 to 
48 hours, depending on the procedure and what happens with that. So, um, and then after we place the Foley, then we get the skin ready for the incision. So there's various skin preps. We can use a betadine skin prep, um, or we can use a chlora prep. Most facilities are using a chlora prep, which works fairly quickly. Um, you do have to wait about three minutes for that to dry. Um, it is an alcohol-based prep, so you don't want to accidentally start any fires anyplace. So you have to let that alcohol dry first before that happens. Um, and then once the skin prep is done, then um, we can go ahead and drape. And many facilities have different types of drapes that we can use. Um, there is a clear drape where when you're laying down on the table, you can actually drop the drape in front of you. And it's a clear drape, so you can actually see what we're doing, see us talking back and forth. Um, usually not see the procedure itself. There are some places that have mirrors um, in our facility, you actually can see looking in the in the lights themselves, see the procedure. But with that clear drape, the important part of that is you can actually see the baby come out, and then we can actually hold the baby up immediately after it's after it's born. Um, other facilities have a drape that is um, just a, a blue drape that you can't see through. Um, and the purpose of that drape is a protective barrier between you and us. We're in a sterile field, and so we don't want to contaminate anything with that that drape itself. So once we have you draped, then um, we will test to make sure that you are numb. Um, we don't want to make any incisions before you can feel anything. Um, and so we have various ways of testing. We have a really sharp instrument we can pinch and make sure that you're nice and numb before that before anything proceeds. Um, and then once we make sure that you're numb, then we can proceed with the skin incision. Um, and then once we've gone through the skin incision, um, then the layers underneath there, the subcutaneous fat tissues that we go through. Um, then we get down to a fascial layer. And with that fascial layer, we dissect through that. Um, and then that underneath that is the muscle layer. And a big misconception is that we actually cut through the muscle, but we don't. The muscle actually is up and down in a linear fashion. Um, and so we can actually just separate that muscle itself and then make way for the room down below that. And then below that is um, uh, another layer that is sort of connected between the bladder and the, and the uterus called the visceral peritoneum. And we can separate that, dissect that out, and then get down to where the uterus is. And then once we have gotten to the uterus, we will usually, in most cases, make a transverse incision across the uterus and then reach in and grab the baby. Um, and it depends on which way the baby is. Sometimes they're breached, sometimes they're head down. Uh, but once we grab a hold of the baby, we can bring it up through the incision um, and then bring the baby up into the sterile field, into the abdomen. And once we do that, then we'll suction the baby and make sure the baby's doing just fine, cut the clamp, uh, clamp and cut the cord, and then take the baby over to show you what the baby looks like. And that's the part you were describing just a few minutes ago. Um, and as long as the baby's doing fine and breathing, then we can stay there for a few seconds and let you take a good look at what the baby looks like. But they're coming out into a very cold environment. And so the ORs are very cold. And so we wanna take the baby over to a warmer as soon as we can. Um, so then we'll take the baby over to the warmer and make sure the baby is doing fine and dry the baby off and, and assess the APGAR scores and make sure the baby's breathing just fine too. Um, and then once everything is fine with the baby, then in most cases, we can bring the baby back to you uh, while we finish up the procedure. And so it's actually just closing all the layers that we just had opened back up again with different types of sutures. Um, and then once we get to the, um, get to the skin, 
um, then there's various ways to close the skin. So some people can actually staple the skin closed. Some people can actually sew the skin closed. We even have internal or underneath the skin staples that we can place too to, to close that skin incision. And there isn't any one way that's better than another. And they've done a lot of research on that. And um, there's not any way that's better than others. So. And then once the procedure is done, then we uh, move you back over to a table. You're still numb or to a cart and then take you back to the room. So that that's, the, that's a quick procedure in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> so to kind of dive into a few details on there, I know a lot of people have, um, when they come into the clinic postpartum, they'll have a lot of pain um, on the right side of the incision. And I was told that generally most surgeons are stitching from left to right. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So usually the surgeon stands on the right side in most cases, um, and I stand on the left side. And so when they're creating knots, they're starting on my side and then going across wherever they're sewing or whatever they're sewing and then making a knot on that right side. Um, and so you'll see a lot of incisional pain on that right side sometimes or even feel a knot sometimes. And then I think another misconception that a lot of women have is they're like, how do they pull a baby out of such a small incision? Will yes. you kind of describe <laughs> the internal incision, how much wider that is compared to the incision scar that we see on the outside? Yeah, and so it's it's oftentimes tough sometimes to pull a baby out of those small incisions, especially if they're big babies. So um, one thing I did leave out is that my part in that of that um, particular situation is that when we make the incision, um, it's across the size of the uterus based on whatever size the uterus is. Some are bigger than others, um, but it's enough that you have to make it big enough to get a certain size baby out. If you're thinking a, a 12 pound baby, then you have to make a bigger incision on the uterus. If you're thinking a smaller baby, then you don't have to make a bigger incision on the uterus. So we kind of gauge the size of the, the baby and what effort needs to be to get the baby out. My part in that is to actually push on your upper stomach to get the baby out. <clears throat> and so that is uncomfortable. Um, and I oftentimes have to stand up quite a lot to get that baby out through that incision and push down fairly hard. And so um, that we always try to warn you ahead of time when that's going to happen. And, and it's an uncomfortable part. Just I admit everybody says it's uncomfortable, but we have to get the baby out at that point. So. Yes, I yeah. do recall that now. But it's amazing yeah. what your brain kind of pushes memories back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, to remember, you know, the happy part you're bringing around, not so much you pushing on my abdomen to get the baby out. <laughs> that's the traumatic part. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So again, we kind of talked about there's a difference between an emergency C-section and the scheduled C-section. So what are common indications for an emergency C-section? Yeah, so very common reasons um, for emergency C-sections are somebody who's in labor um, and something is is just not right. And we're watching the baby's heartbeat the entire time. So probably one of the most common reasons is we can see something with the baby's heartbeat, um, maybe decelerations going on, um, or it could be a bradycardic episode where the heart rate is slowing down too much um, and we need to get the baby out quickly. And so it depends on how far dilated you are, but in most cases, it's not not, there's not enough time to get the baby out vaginally. So we have to rush back and do an emergency C-section at that case. So um, there are times when um, unfortunately the placenta will separate away. We call an abruption. Um, we'll oftentimes see bleeding, but oftentimes we'll see the baby's heart rate drop also when that happens. And so an emergency C-section can be because the placenta is separating away. Uh, we call an abruption. 
Um, emergency C-section can occur um, if for some reason you were having a baby that's upside down, a breech baby, and you came into labor and you were advanced dilated, um, then sometimes we have to get that baby out before it ends up coming out through the vagina, which can be a dangerous situation. So emergency situation can be with the baby coming out breech sometimes too. So uh, yeah, those are emergencies. And then on the flip side, what are common indications for scheduled C-sections? Yeah, again, a breech baby. Um, it's nice to have the luxury of um, scheduling a C-section when you know the baby is breech. We try to do um, ECVs or external cephalic versions on moms around 37 weeks to try to turn those babies, but sometimes they just don't cooperate. Um, and it's really hard sometimes to get them to turn. And so at that point, moms have a choice of scheduling a C-section based on um, whenever it's safe to do it. Usually it's 39 weeks. <clears throat> so most babies will deliver at 39 weeks on a scheduled basis, if that's possible. Some people want to wait till their due date uh, to 40 weeks, but most of the time it's 39 weeks. So breach is one indication for that. Somebody who's had a repeat C-section, um, or who has a, had a C-section in the past and wants to have a repeat C-section, um, we can schedule that too at that time. Um, and then um, that, uh, again, can be done at 39 weeks. And um, and then scheduled C-sections for other indications, that's about, that's usually about it, so. Right. Yeah. So I definitely had one of each. So <laughs> my first baby became an emergency C-section because as you mentioned, baby began to decelerate. So that's when the baby's heart rate would drop as I would have my contractions and I only made it to about like a five. Yeah. Um, and then round two, you know, you have the option of doing the VBAC or the scheduled C-section and kind of knowing the risks of each. I just, and my own body and knowing how well I did not progress with Pitocin and all the fun stuff that just yeah. kind of taking that factor out of it and scheduling it and being in one minute and 30 minutes out with a baby was so nice so I have a lot of patients that will ask me like well you know what would you prefer I'm like the devil you know is better than the devil you don't sometimes when it comes yeah. to doing a c-section versus a v-back um and at least for my experience in our life it it was perfect to do the scheduled c-section it everything came out just the way it should. Yeah, there's actually a calculator that has been created to create or to predict your success for a vaginal delivery. It's a VBAC or vaginal birth after C-section calculator. You can you can read about it online. You can just type in VBAC calculator, Google it. It'll come up with a calculator. It has some medical terms that you can actually work through, but actually we use that a lot to predict success for another uh, vaginal delivery after a C-section. There's a couple of factors that play into that. Number one is how was that incision on the uterus itself? And if it is a transverse incision, then that, depending on what else is happening, is a safer way to have a vaginal delivery after a C-section. Um, if it was a vertical incision or up and down incision or even a T incision on the uterus, then that's not a safe um, indicator for a vaginal delivery after a C-section. So you just have to talk with your physician, your midwife, to decide uh, whether or not it's safe for a vaginal delivery after that. Um, what would cause the indications for a T or a vertical incision? Yeah, sometimes when you need to get that bigger baby out, like I was talking about, um, you have to make a uh, up and down incision on the uterus. And it just doesn't go well with the muscle fibers. And um, there's more of a risk of having the 
uterus open up uh, while you're actually having some contractions in labor. So, and then a T incision, the same thing. If you have um, difficulty getting the baby out of the uterus somehow, then you actually sometimes have to make that wider incision to get the baby out. I think I'm biased, obviously, because I'm a female, but I think the uterus is the coolest muscle in the body. I think people don't realize that it's a muscle until you kind of think about the contractions, but it's so cool how it has, you know, the three different layers of muscles up and down, side to side, and then the circular ones and the circular muscles being the ones that are really kind of rotating that baby down into the pelvic cavity during those contractions. And, you know, what muscle in the body starts out the size of the fist and gets as big as a watermelon and then ends up back the size of the fist i mean i almost instantly yeah yeah it's the coolest muscle but again like it really is (laughs) it is a it is a cool muscle it's so cool what it does and then sometimes it misbehaves and we have to actually spank it (laughs) oh true that is so true they they like have a mind of their own down there it's you have your own birth plan and the the uterus sometimes has its own plan it does throws us a curve all the time yes yes it keeps keeps us guessing for sure yeah yeah (laughs) Well, kind of while we're talking about the uterus and the placenta, um, I know, you know, kind of all the rage right now is really getting that like skin to skin time and really trying to keep the umbilical cord attached for a few minutes to, um, you know, when you're reading on some of these more natural birth plans. Um, And that was one thing that I was hoping for, but then was kind of informed that, you know, keeping the umbilical cord attached and the placenta in place and the OR is not the best option. Can you kind of give some more information on that for our listeners? Yeah, it it uh, it does kind of make some of the birth plans go to the wayside um, because we're in a sterile environment and we have to keep things sterile. We can't have dad reach over the the field and cut the umbilical cord and um, and we have to maintain that sterile environment. So there are some things that we can do. Um, you know, when the baby is born and they're attached to the placenta by the umbilical cord, we have a little bit of time to allow that to you know the blood flow to go back and forth, but not the two minutes or three minutes that it would be like you're having a bad delivery we can put the baby up on your tummy and and do that Um, because as they come out they're wet and they're in a very cold environment and babies lose heat very easily and so we want to get them to the warmer and dried off as as quickly as we can so some of the things that we'll do is we will allow a little bit of time if the baby's doing great Um, again if it's an emergency c-section sometimes you really worry about how the baby is doing and so then getting it to the nursery staff the newborn intensive care staff is very important but if there is um, luxury of time then you can allow a little bit of time for the cord to um, exchange the blood back and forth. Um, When we cut the umbilical cord, we'll actually leave a segment longer than what we normally would. And then when the baby's over in the warmer, dad can go over and cut the rest of the umbilical cord Mm -hmm. if they want to. Um, But unfortunately, we can't um, have a connection between our sterile field and mom or our sterile field and dad because we need to keep things sterile to prevent um, infection. So one of the things that I've started doing as long as the baby is doing is doing great is I, I um, put the baby on a sterile towel. And then as I walk the baby over, Madison, if you remember, walk the baby over to you so you can take a good look. Um, sometimes moms will reach up and touch the baby. And that's that's great because I have the sterile towel between my hands and the baby. Um, so I'm very careful to make sure they don't touch me because I'm still sterile. But at least you can touch the baby without contaminating things. And that's, that's sort of a nice little connection you can make right away. Um, and then if you do accidentally touch me, then I can always change too. But, but then 
over in the warmers where dads can follow us over and finish out whatever they need to do. So yeah, it's unfortunate a little bit, not the same as a vaginal delivery, but there are things we can do to try to minimize some of that. So it's not as bad. Got it. And then um, kind of still staying on the, the um, placenta and the uterus, how many times are you able to safely have a C-section? I'm sure that answer is it depends. Um, but yeah, maybe talk yeah. to me about those different precautions, why, and um, so our listeners know, you know, if you, you have one, because I know a lot of people ask me, well, I want like four, four kids maybe. That's why I'm thinking about doing the VBAC with baby number two. Um, so I think having an awareness of how safe each one is on top of another might help these individuals make a better informed decision. Yeah. And that is something you want to think about when you have C-sections. Obviously there's things that are not under your control and that you can actually, um, you know, not have control over. But one of the things you want to think about is how many kids are you going to have? And if you have to have a repeat C-section or going to have a repeat C-section, then is it one, two, three, four, five kids and five repeat C-sections? So, um, but again, it goes back to that wonderful magical uterus and how well it heals. And the biggest risk is with the future pregnancy after you've had a C-section is having that uterus open up accidentally. Um, and as you contract, as the uterus muscles contract, then if there's an area that's been cut through, then that area can open up too easily inside while you're in labor. And then you have an emergency situation and it's bad for baby and bad for mom if that happens. So, so you're right. The answer to that question is it depends and it depends on how well you heal. Um, and some people heal very well. I've gone in on second C-sections and um, realized that somebody had thrown a bomb in there and it was just a horrible, 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 and I wouldn't recommend any other C-sections. Um, and I've gone in on fourth and fifth C-sections and it looks just like the very first section like nobody's ever been in that tummy before. Um, so it really depends on the person's ability to heal. So it's not just the uterus, it's also the scar tissue that is surrounding the area. Um, and the area between the bladder and the uterus in particular is, a, is one that we pay very close attention to because there are risks to doing surgery, risks to bladder and risks to, to the bowel too. So yeah, it depends on how well people heal. Great, great. And then, you know, I know as physical therapists, we will commonly work on patients postpartum with C-section scar pain or even pre-pregnancy to kind of help break up any of those deep scars that might be adhering to any of those other structures to allow for a more ease of mind as well as, you know, mobility. We can really feel the different scar tissues and that visceral motion, depending on the type of therapist that you go to see. Um, so if any of those listeners are out there that are, you know, concerned about how their scarring might be, definitely ask your your provider how it looked when they were in there. Um, and then your other option is to go to see physical therapists that are certified in either pelvic health or visceral mobilization so that they can really feel that scarring and help to break up any adhesions that may have formed deep within the um, abdomen to allow for a safer C-section and um, pregnancy as well. Yeah, you guys do great at doing that kind of stuff. I just love sending patients to you for just for that. So yeah. it's it's so fantastic because they come back saying, wow, I feel so much better. I can actually do this. I can do that. It's like, yeah, I know they're miracle workers. It's great. <laughs> they work miracles. It was so interesting. <laughs> I had a patient that had a C-section and they went to go place an IUD and couldn't because of the amount of scarring. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of her goal was not so much to be able to have another baby, but she just wanted the opposite. She wanted to be able to have birth 
control placement. And so, you know, we were able to, with internal and external mobilizations, allow that individual after a month or so to go back to their provider and have that IUD placed without any difficulty. And they were really, really pleased with that. Wow. That's great. That's great. So, you know, we've kind of talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I am curious, what are the most common issues that arise during the procedure that could be negative? So the, the risks are what you're talking about the most of, of a C-section. Obviously, sometimes you don't have controls, but you need to at least understand and know some of the risks that are involved with surgery themselves. And that's risk to injury to bladder. The bladder sits right on top of the uterus, right where we're going to make the incision. Um, and so sometimes there's injury to the bladder itself. Um, many, many, most of the times, actually, we can recognize that as we're um, making the incision, delivering the baby, that kind of stuff. It's a great time. It's all right there. We can see exactly what's going on. But as with any surgery, there's risks to all the structures that are around the area, which includes bowel. There's many times when we're um, getting things back together again that the bowel will come down and say, hey, here I am. Um, and so there's always risk to that. There's, there's risks to um, infection after surgeries. Um, we're opening up the abdomen. We're creating a space that can be very um, receptible to bacteria. And so there's always risk for infection because we introduce bacteria into that area. Um, and so those are, those are kind of the biggest risks to, to worry about. There's always risks to injury to babies. Sometimes it is harder to get babies out. Um, you try to make bigger incisions, but sometimes babies have their own little way of getting into places where you can't get them out. And so you have to do some extraordinary measures to get them out. And so sometimes there's risks to babies getting, getting um, babies out sometimes. Um, and those are some of the bigger risks that you have to worry about. And of course, we have those kind of risks with any time we have an epidural or a nerve block, of course, as well as um, a Foley catheter in place, we could always have a problem with that, having any infection as well as, um, you know, like you had mentioned, they kind of depend on when they decide to take the Foley out based on, you know, mom's mobility, how much urine output we're seeing, what's the color of the urine output, um, and so, you know, they're really making sure that once that fully is out, that we're not having problems with urinary retention and that yeah. you're able to get up and use the restroom. So now we're not overstretching that bladder that's right on top of that uterus. Um, and so I know that those, as well as, you know, making sure that we're getting up and walking any type of surgery, we're going to be at risk for, you know, DVTs, you're laying down a lot. Um, so making sure, especially after, you know, no matter what type of birth, but most, especially after C-sections to be up and moving, um, as well as in bed doing those ankle pumps. And they give us those really fun compression stocking, um, right. air, air squeeze puffs, squeezy boots, um, the squeezy boots. And so <laughs> you know, those kind of help with the DVTs as well. Yeah. Um, uh, and so just we knowing. talk a lot about risks and stuff and and we have to mention all that stuff so that you're more informed so that you know but you know try not to be too scared about that kind of stuff they're they're rare complications they don't happen that often we just want you to be aware of exactly what can happen and and informed consent is the best best thing to know ahead of time so yeah definitely definitely and then i've had some patients that are curious during the c-section um correction surgically on that rectus abdominis diastasis yeah talk to me a little bit about that like where is that incision how far up does it go and yeah i'm curious 
Yeah, as I mentioned during the procedure, what I was talking about was we actually split the, the stomach muscles. We don't actually cut them. Sometimes we do have to cut them, but it's very rare. And separating those muscles creates that diastasis as well as pregnancy itself. There's that natural diastasis that occurs in pregnancy. Um, they've done some research, and there isn't any advantage to putting those muscles back together again, um, but many people do. And so it just looks nice. Um, and if we can prevent anything from happening in the future, then why not do it? So, so some surgeons don't do it. Many surgeons do do it, put it back together again. And it just naturally heals on its own as it comes back together again. Um, and then thankfully, all these physical therapy people will actually make it <laughs> help you out with getting it back together again and getting tight again, too. So totally. Uh, yeah. And so I think because of the procedure itself, people with C-sections have a higher probability of a diastasis than a vaginal delivery. Um, yeah, I agree. And so coming in for physical therapy, we've created a full protocol for that where we do electrical stimulation to that rectus abdominis muscle to get it to fatigue out prior to going to other exercises. Um, we do different soft tissue mobilization techniques with either A-STEM or Graston tools. Um, then we use kinesio tape to help approximate the abdominal muscles together with a nice 75% stretch that adds some good core stability and kind of helps to promote that healing process. And then lastly, we have a whole return to core strengthening protocol in regards to strengthening kind of the transverse abdominis, the obliques, um, prior to beginning to work on that rectus abdominis or those kind of superficial washboard muscles as those are the ones that have separated during the diastasis. So we want to not engage those in the beginning until we have full reunion of that linea alba that's which is great. awesome <clears throat> yeah and now it's my understanding that c-sections are generally safer for the baby than a vaginal delivery is that correct uh not necessarily no <clears throat> so um you know we do uh have problems with do vaginal deliveries and again in size of the baby um, shoulder dissociates are our biggest nemesis where we can actually injure the shoulder called a brachial plexus injury. Um, but you can also get that through a C-section too, if you're trying to get the baby out. Um, and so it's generally possibly safer, but you have to weigh in the risks, benefits, the risks of C-sections versus the risk of vaginal delivery versus the benefits of C-section and benefits of vaginal delivery. So it's necessary sometimes to save the baby's life and to save mom's life sometimes. Um, you know, one of the things moms can have um, high blood pressure issues, they can have what we call help syndrome, um, where they actually have some serious conditions going on, you've got to get the baby out. And you don't have the luxury of a vaginal delivery at that time, you just got to get the baby out and get mom feeling better and get her fixed. Um, so at that point, it is safer for C-section versus vaginal delivery for mom and baby at the same time. Um, so there's a lot of different scenarios where it could be go either way. So do you ever get any off the wall questions uh, during your maybe last gynecologic visit with these patients before their surgery that you're like, oh, haven't heard that one before it just kind of seems to be unique that you want to share with us to help ease anybody else's maybe random questions that might pop up? <laughs> <laughs> like like before a C-section? Yeah, like I always yeah. wonder if someone like randomly like shoots you a question where you're like, oh, that's a new one, huh? <laughs> um, 
you know, people didn't hear about vaginal seeding until about, oh, I think a couple, three, four years ago. And so one of the ones that that was an aha moment for me was um, to take mom's vaginal flora and put it on the baby. Um, and typically you can do that um, immediately after the baby is born. But but the thought behind that was when a baby comes to the vagina, they're inoculated with mom's vaginal flora and that helps them um, in the first few days of life. And so you don't get that vaginal flora with, um, with a C-section. And so seeding, you would put a gauze sponge in the vagina allows some of the secretions to seek into the gauze sponge. And then after the baby is born, you wipe the baby with the, the gauze sponge. Um, so it's a very real phenomenon and very legitimate, but it sort of takes you aback when you hear that for the very first time. It's like, we're going to do what? <laughs> totally. I didn't even know that was a thing. So that is yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's, you do get those questions. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. That was a good one. <laughs> Great. I think the other one people don't realize is most babies have to be suctioned after a c-section because comparatively to a vaginal delivery because when they're coming out of the vaginal canal it's a little bit safer and they don't have as many risks as aspiration as they do with a c-section correct yeah it's you know a tighter environment coming through the vagina so they actually get their chest squeezed and they'll they'll spit out secretions and get all the fluid that's in their lungs out a little bit easier um obviously when we're doing a c-section we're trying to make a bigger hole for them to come through so they can get out easier so they don't get that squeeze and when they don't get the squeeze they don't get all the secretions out which is another reason why we take them over to the warmer fairly quickly to so that the the nursery staff can get them sucked out fairly quickly and get all those secretions cleared out so they do sometimes have a little more difficult transition at that time because they don't get that squeeze and then I know at least with baby number one, because it was more of a stressed C-section situation, he also had just barely pooped before coming out. So that made a bit of a mess. What was that all about? <laughs> yeah. Why did you make that baby poop? What the world. <laughs> so that's the baby's first bowel movement. It's called the meconium stained fluid. Or, and when the baby has their first meconium passage, then it can mix in with the amniotic fluid in inside the uterus. Um, and we call that meconium stained fluid. And it's various degrees. Sometimes it's as thick as pea soup. And other times it's, it's fairly light and fairly thin. So depending on the thickness of it, um, the biggest risk is aspiration into the baby's lungs when they take their very first breath. So we do a lot of measures to get that sucked out of their nose and their mouth before they actually take that, that first breath. Um, and then you watch for, for signs of pneumonia with a baby on it yeah well if nothing else what do you hope listeners take away from this discussion pete well i hope they learned a little bit about what c-sections are and and um, emergency c-sections and planned c-sections and to not be too afraid of the procedure itself Um, and to actually just talk to your surgeon talk to your nurse midwife talk to whoever has been working with you about the procedure itself and learn more about it um, and ask those questions exactly what we were talking about what what's happening what's going on Um, you know what are my rights what can i do what can i not do Um, 
and I think explaining things really helps a lot. Um, and having the partner there too is very helpful. So there's been times when I've brought that baby around to show mom and the partners don't understand that I'm just showing the baby. I'm not actually giving the baby to them at the that time because I want to actually walk it over to the nursery or to the warmer to allow it to dry off. And the dads will, you know, grab me and say, oh, thank you for the baby. And it's like, eh, no, I'm still sterile. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> And so education is a big part. And so I've started, you know, telling dads when I'm out there getting ready for the surgery and they're sitting there waiting to come into the room. I'm telling dads, you know, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to show you the baby. And then we, you and I can walk over to the warmer and warm the baby up and that kind of stuff. So I think knowing more definitely helps with um, the fear factor of that too. And then I also want patients to know that you guys are available to help with all these other things that we just talked about. And um, it's very important for them to get connected with you guys to help with any kind of adhesions, pains, those kind of things that we just talked about. And, um, I don't think a lot of people realize that physical therapy is an option for that kind of stuff. Definitely. No, I yeah. appreciate that. Well, yeah. thank you all for listening. If you would like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Pete for coming on the show today. And Pete, if listeners want more information or would like to get in contact with you, what is the best way to do so? Through uh, email is probably the best. So that'll be peter.barnard at mountainstarhealth.com. Um, and that's uh, HCA organization that I work for, St. Mark's Mountain Star Healthcare. So, yeah. Thank Perfect. you for having me on. Thanks. I hope I illuminated things a little bit. So. Yes, you did great. And for our listeners out there, please tune in for next month's episode. And remember to subscribe to this podcast to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.